This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi today. We're going to talk about the bad Santa on the show today. This is the Santa Claus at that mall in in Penticton who was fired after inappropriate photos showed up on social media. This showed him in his full Santa Claus costume and had him in some compromising positions. So there's one photo of him swigging booze from a hip flask. And there's also another one of him pretending, I guess, to grope a a woman's breasts. Now, he is saying that the people in the photos were going along with this. It was just a joke. He posted the photos himself, this bad Santa. So as you heard him say on the news there, he's saying he's not exactly the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree because he shouldn't have posted those photos on social media himself. He ended up losing his job over it. I'm going to talk to the head of the Santa Claus School of America on the show about it today, get her take on it, but I want your take right now. So here's the hot question of the day. That bad Santa has been fired after those social media photos appeared online. Simple question. Should he have been fired? Would you say... Yes, they should have fired him. He's a rebel without a clause. Or would you say, no, come on, it's just a joke. He's slaying it. Get it? He's slaying it. Here's how you vote in this one today. At CKNW on Twitter. At CKNW on Twitter, you'll find it there. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Smith spelled with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H, Mike Smith News on Twitter. And I'll repost, I'll retweet the hot question of the day. I'm interested to see what the reaction is going to be on this one today for sure. Phone me on the buzz line in this one today too and leave me a voicemail there. We may play it later. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. 604-331-2899 on the bad Santa. Stay tuned for the head of the Santa Claus School of America weighing in on that one later on the show. On winning in the Industry Business Partnership of the Year, our community is strengthened by these excellent businesses and services, and it's a real privilege to be able to recognize them here in the house. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. That is the voice of an NDP MLA, Mitzi Dean, speaking live right now in the B.C. legislature. It is the final day of the legislative session, so time to assemble our political panel to talk about who won the session, who lost the session, what were the other highlights, and very pleased to welcome back to the program Shannon Waters, she is a reporter with BC Today in the Press Gallery, BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Mike. Thank- nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. Also, McLean Kay is here, editor-in-chief, the Orca, theorca.ca. Hi, McLean. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having us on. Okay, guys. Uh, let me start with the uh, the winner and loser of, of the session. And, McLean, I don't know. I'm throwing you a curveball because we didn't talk about this one off here. <laughs> but do you think uh, do you think anybody won the session, lost the session? I think the NDP is pretty smooth sailing for this government right now, isn't it? I think what will be remembered from the session is is UNDRIP, uh, which we'll get to. So I, I think in that respect, uh, the NDP will be very happy to claim a win. Uh, the BC Liberals will point to something else we're going to get to, which is the, the quarterly update and the, the shrinking surplus. So I, I think supporters of both sides could point to a win in this session, and they'll both have a point. Okay, Shannon, what do you think? 
Uh, I'll agree with McLean for the most part. I think that it has been sort of smooth sailing for the government. I think one of the things that they are probably very happy about this week was avoiding the general transit shutdown in Metro Vancouver. That would not have reflected well on the provincial government. Uh, They sort of took a hands-off approach and said, let the parties figure it out at the bargaining table. The liberals were saying, no, you need to step in. You can't do this to people who rely on transit in the lower mainland. And in the end, it was all resolved or, you know, we we avoided the strike. And so I think the government could call that a win as well. Yeah, I think to the government's great relief here, uh, because I think you're right. We had a a number of sort of labor fires burning here because you had the Saanich school strike Mm -hmm. was going for a while there, too. The schools were shut down for three weeks. And I think the government was on the verge of intervening in that one. Then you had the threatened Metro Vancouver bus strike. And if that had gone forward, I, there would have been a ton of pressure on Horgan to intervene here, I think, where he, where he really didn't want to. Do you think that that obviously is is a relief for the government? Do you think the Liberals, McLean, in, in some ways, where I think the Liberals are saying, like, oh, it's good that this strike has been avoided. And then the back rooms are going, darn it. We wanted the chaos. We wanted the gridlock so we could try to blame it on the NDP. Do you think that's what they're really saying in the back rooms? Um, I'm sure some they of them are. Come on. You know they are. <laughs> well, not the ones in Vancouver. Uh, I don't think anyone actually roots for the Carmageddon that would have. Uh... I'm, I'm talking about political. I'm talking <laughs> yeah. political reality, right? Like I think what the liberals they would never admit this on the record. No. But what I'm saying is secretly, they were kind of hoping that this strike would happen. And that they could somehow blame it on Horrigan. And now that it's been resolved, I mean, you could see that this week in the hallway with the labor minister, uh, Harry Bain, saying, like, I hope other parties take a lesson from this, that uh, collective bargaining works and you don't need to intervene all the time. But your thoughts? I mean, yes, I'm sure politically the any party in opposition is always going to try and find opportunities to embarrass the government. And a transit full transit strike would have been very embarrassing for the government. Yeah. It's not any different than, you know, I'm sure the BCNDP quietly had similar feelings during the last school strike. Of course, they don't want schools to be closed. But if it's happening on the, uh, the other side's watch, then, of course, they're going to try and take advantage What's of it. What's going on with teachers, though? Well, that, right now, nothing. That's the problem. When we saw that their tensions are still very real, um, they had sort of almost like a parallel convention here last weekend in Victoria. Uh, I'm told uh, that the the Empress Hotel, where they had the both BC NDP convention and the BCTF uh, event, they actually locked the doors in between them, which doesn't happen if you're familiar with the... Okay. Shannon, what's your read on the situation with the, the teachers' union because they're without a contract? There are no threats of a of a teacher strike right now, but I think into the new year, if this drags on, we could be back to the barricades there. So I was covering the NDP convention this weekend and and did go out and, and talk to some of the teachers who were out there dressed in red, holding up signs. People were driving down the street and honking to show their support. There was a very large crowd out there. And um, BCTF President Terry Mooring said, yes, we would like to resolve this at the bargaining table and, and basically said, no, we don't want to strike, but also said, that's not up to me. That ends up being up to the membership. And at a certain point in time, if they're not making any progress and they don't think that on the government side, they're going to give them what they need to, from their perspective, reach an agreement. Um, there's a possibility do think, there. Do you think that 
some kind of confrontation is inevitable here, given that Carol James, the finance minister this week, reiterated again, look, there's no big pot of gold here that, you know, we're not dumping more money on the bargaining table here. It does seem like the sides are becoming entrenched. I mean, they've been negotiating since February. We're coming up on a year in a couple of months here. Okay, speaking to Carol James McLean, she uh, gave a quarterly update on the budget. The budget's still balanced, but just barely, right? Yeah, it's it's down for it's down to 149 million, which uh, sounds like surplus. a lot. Uh, surplus, yes, um, and it sounds like a lot. It was 179 million in the uh, the last update. Uh, it was 2.5 billion uh, in 2017 when they came in. So the trend is is pretty clearly down. Uh, yeah. The NDP know that they need a balanced budget, just politically. Why? Uh, well, uh, I don't think they'll. They're not going to get the same benefit of the doubt as another party. If, if they go into the next election having inherited a $2.5 billion surplus and in just four years, and they're right that there'll be some external challenges that have uh, helped contribute to that. But $2.5 billion vanishing over four years after raising revenue in a lot of new and increased taxes, it's just not going to look good on them. Shannon, you agree? Yeah, I th- and I think that's something that the finance minister sort of didn't really want to answer during the update this week. She was asked, you know, what's the problem with going into a debt, like uh, having a $200 million surplus and a $200 million deficit, like in the big picture, there's not really that much difference. It's like a rounding, rounding error at the end of the day. But- and she said, you know, I can't promise you there never will be a deficit, but basically uh-huh. I'm going to work incredibly hard to make sure that we don't get there. But there are a number of issues that could end up pushing the razor thin surplus, as people like to say, into a deficit situation. What's one of the big ones? Well, ICBC is what we always hear about. What's going on with that dumpster fire? Is it still burning? Uh, Yeah, uh, smoldering maybe, (laughs) but they definitely haven't put it out quite yet. What's the problem there, McCain? McLean. Well, the uh, NDP lost a, uh, a BC Supreme Court case, um, yeah. which uh, had to do with re- restricting uh, court experts. Um, and it meant uh, when they introduced it, they told us that it would be a $400 million savings. They were very clear on that number. And now that they have lost the case and have decided not to appeal, um, they're being a little cagier about what that actually means in terms of the hit. Um, David Eby, the Attorney General, was pretty clear that it means $400 million eventually, but they are working working on legislative changes that they hope might uh, ameliorate some of that. I thought it was interesting in the quarterly update that Carol James increased the contingency funds to 500 from 400 so that they could conceivably absorb that $400 million hit all at once. Uh, now, they chose not to do that in this update. Okay, the, the ICBC situation uh, is not going away. And Shannon, your thoughts on that? Because they're going to try a do-over now on this these court case rules. So what the government did was they brought in these rules restricting the use of expert testimony in ICBC court cases. They said it was lower lower costs. The trial lawyers fought them in court and won. So those rules were scrapped. Now the government's going to try it again, right? Because last time they did it by like a cabinet order or by regulation. Now they're going to try and b- bring a bill into the house. They're going to try and do this again, basically, in the new year. Yes. Right? And, and, and then through... what happens? They get sued again? <laughs> Probably. The attorney general did say when we asked him, you know, you've already tried this through regulation. Now you're going to try legislation. Do you expect a challenge on that front? And he said he believes the chances are pretty much 100 percent that even if they pass a bill in the spring, that is still going to be challenged eventually. So more court costs, potential delays in the implementation of the legislation on that side. And the other thing is the reason that they went with the regulatory change first is 
they expected that to be able to save them that $400 million. They do not believe that on the legislative front, by making legislative changes, they will be able to save anywhere near that much money. So like McLean said, there is a $400 million hit coming at some point. And right now what the government is trying to figure out is how to reduce that by as much as they possibly can, knowing full well that they're not going to be able to make it up now. And just during the commercial break, Shannon, we were talking about legal marijuana. And this is a story you've been working on. So tell me this again. The government is actually going to lose money It's starting. trying to sell weed in BC? Are you kidding me? It's starting to look that way. Wow. We haven't got confirmation yet. Some other provinces have already posted losses in the first uh, year of legal cannabis. Ontario, it was, I believe, $42 million that they lost in their first year. And New Brunswick, their government is getting out of selling legal weed because they lost so much money in the first year, they're just going to hand it right over to the private sector. Now, one of the things that I noticed when we got the quarterly update federal um, revenues were de- like transfers from the federal government were down because BC share of the cannabis excise tax was down and so at the beginning of the year they were hoping for 38 million dollars from this excise tax uh, which is related to how much cannabis the province is buying and now in the second quarterly update that's down to eight. They've they've revised it down by almost 80%. Okay, McLean, why is this happening? I mean, this is British Columbia, the land of BC bud, kind of ground zero for the pro-legalization marijuana movement. This was supposed to be, you know, a golden goose for government. How the heck does the government lose money selling weed? I think it's there's a lot of reasons, and I certainly don't have the expertise on this, that Shannon's done some amazing work on this file. But, I mean... If you were if you were a, a regular consumer of cannabis and you were buying you had a, a source you trusted and you got product you liked would you then suddenly decide to go and buy mail order product from the government that is probably much older and is not something you're comfortable with I mean would you buy mail order cilantro from the government if it was coming from Ontario I don't think you would and really what's the difference Okay, like I wonder if the government's weed is is bad. Like are they selling uh, ditch weed or are they selling quality stuff? I mean, what are you hearing from the people you're talking to? Shannon? Well, it's not BC Bud for it's one not? thing. Most of what is being sold through the legal retailers is coming from out of province. It's being grown by large scale producers in places like Alberta. I believe it's Manitoba is another um, big producer and Ontario. So they're not getting BC Bud when they go to the BC cannabis store and arguably it's been some of the best cannabis in the world. The other thing that we've been seeing is because there haven't been a lot of retail options, but um, the government buys all of the cannabis that legally comes into the province and then retailers purchase it from the government. But because there haven't been many retailers, the product has been sitting in warehouses sometimes for extended periods of time. When I was researching this in the summers, this is the summer of 2019, people were reporting that they'd bought legal weed from a, a retailer, whether that's the government store or their local um, licensed retailer. And the packaging date stamped on it was from 2018. Wow. Okay. That's not, that is not good. Uh, now, McLean, I remember talking to Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, who's kind of the cabinet point man on this. And he's, he was very gung-ho about a year ago for BC Bud, saying, like, we can make this kind of like the craft beer of marijuana. We've seen this wonderful explosion of craft beer production in, in British Columbia with all these new breweries opening up. 
He said, we can do the same thing with marijuana. So you could have small craft boutique type, high quality, locally grown marijuana products. And I mean, it sounded, it sounded great. And what happened? How come that hasn't happened? I mean, that's probably, you could do an entire show on what's gone wrong. And then the craft beer comparison, I think, is a really good one. Because yeah. you, you can imagine, I think craft beer is similar in a lot of respects in that people buy it and expect to consume it fairly shortly thereafter. Yeah. But imagine if instead of going to your local pub or liquor store, you had to uh, submit an order online. And what you got was, you know, Labatt Blue that was bottled or canned four years ago. It's, yeah. it's a supply chain issue. Okay, can you blame the government for this, Shannon? I mean, this is like, I remember Farnworth saying, like, don't expect miracles overnight. This is a big transition. It's going to take some time to get a functioning industry up and running. But I don't know. I mean, the fact that they're losing money a year later... I mean, you know, the should, the government, should the government take some blame on this? On the production side, maybe not so much. That's in the federal government's um, jurisdiction. They are the ones who are deciding who is getting licensed um, to produce legal cannabis. Yeah. And that has mostly gone to larger scale producers that the federal government was already familiar with through the medical marijuana process. The province has been working to get... Uh, people who have been producing cannabis in BC on the gray or black market into the legitimate right. stream, right. but it's taking time and they're having to deal with the feds. When it comes to the licensing and retail options, yes, I think the province is to blame. I think they had a really good and interesting opportunity. Um, some cities were already licensing cannabis retailers on a municipal scale, and instead of allowing those retailers to continue to sell and operate while they went through the provincial licensing process, the government said no. Everybody goes back to square one and they really focused on the licensing side. The licensing process has been the holdup um, and that has been about trying to keep uh, organized crime out of the legal retail side of things. But I would argue that for a lot of British Columbians who are excited about being able to buy legal cannabis uh, conveniently and legally, um, after a year of not having many options, of not having good quality and of high prices, a lot of them are probably a bit nostalgic for, you know, their neighborhood or well, familiar dealer. Well, maybe that's why they're still using the local dealer. Exactly. Right? I yeah. think it may have further entrenched the black market in BC in many ways. Okay. And meanwhile, I mean, you got the BC government trying to shut down these illegal marijuana growers. They've had some raids of illegal pot shops. I suspect that's going to continue in the new year as well. Do you see that ramping up? I just got a minute, a minute left here. We've basically been told that, yes, um, that's something that the Solicitor General has been very clear on, that as more retail shops open, they are going to have less patience for the retail outlets that have continued to buck the legal side of the equation. Okay, you've done great. As McLean said, you've done great work on that particular story. So I encourage people, if you're interested in the legal marijuana business in British Columbia, you should definitely check out Shannon's work there, BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Uh, Guys, thank you very much for coming in. Always Appreciate a pleasure, Mike. It. Thank you very much. Thanks, McLean. McLean K, Editor-in-Chief, The Orca. You can read his stuff at theorca.ca. Shannon Waters, reporter, BC Today. Let's talk about ride-hailing now. Will you be able to call an Uber or Lyft car on your smartphone this Christmas? It's too bad we don't have it right now. The Christmas party season well underway. I think a lot of people this weekend would like to get an Uber or Lyft car if they're coming home from a Christmas party after having a few drinks. But still, the waiting game continues. And what's happening right now is the BC Passenger Transportation Board 
is still reviewing the applications from Uber, Lyft, and also about more than a dozen other ride-hailing companies. There's a lot of them, and they've all applied for operating licenses in British Columbia. The official line from the government now is they expect to have these services up and running before the end of the year. But if that sounds familiar, it's because you have heard it before. You've heard it many times before, actually. The last couple of Christmases have gone by with promised ride-hailing services not materializing. It's starting to feel like Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown every time. It's like, you're going to fool me again here? Are we really going to get these services this time? It's hard to shake that feeling that somehow, some way, uh, this could be messed up again. But we still wait for ride-hailing services in B.C. Have a listen to this now. This is uh, the Transportation Minister, Claire Trevena, on the program earlier, promising British Columbians once again that they would get ride-hailing by the end of the year. I'm confident that this will happen this year. What do you say then to people who do view do this we kind have of skeptically? The we rolled up our sleeves, got on with it, uh, got legislation through, drew up, the, drew up the regulations, have all the regulations in place. Now we're into the final stages where an independent tribunal is literally dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure everything is in place. I just say it's going to be happening soon. Okay, so you sound confident that this is just, as you said, crossing T's, dotting I's, everything else is on track. Everything is on track. We have done as a government everything we can do to ensure that ride hail comes to BC uh, this year. All right. We'll hold you to that. I'm sure we'll be talking to you if that doesn't happen. Thank you very much, Simi. <laughs> All right. That's Simi talking to Transportation Minister Claire Trevena earlier. You know what? I'm going to believe it when I see it. We've been waiting for this for seven years. Is it finally going to happen this time? Let's check in now with Richard Stewart. He's the mayor of Coquitlam and very interesting that the Tri-Cities of Metro Vancouver, Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, and Port Moody have banded together here for a local business licensing regime for ride-hailing. Mayor Stewart, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. How is this going to work here in the Tri-Cities for licensing for ride-hailing? Well, working out the details, we've we've done the same thing in the past. The Tri-Cities has a mobile business license regime so that the plumbers and the caterers, they don't need to have a license in all three communities. They simply um, get a a mobile business license for all of them. That is the non-brick-and-mortar businesses that serve our residents uh, won't have to get a business license in all three communities. And we intend to use the same kind of model uh, in order to advance a mobile business license related to uh, ride-hailing, one that would uh, essentially not conflict with whatever regional model we eventually come up with uh, uh, through the TransLink process that's currently underway. Okay, I've read that it's going to be, what, a $0.10 per trip fee? Is that correct? We don't have. We haven't worked out all the details yet, and then we'll have to have a dialogue back and forth. But it's going to be in that order. We'll have a. We'll have a per fee uh, per trip fee. Uh, I yeah. suspect we won't do the Vancouver thing and have a per car fee because if you do that, then ride hailing dies uh, across mm-hmm. the region. It makes it puts barriers again at, at each boundary, and we don't need those barriers. This one of the reasons that the current taxi system works so poorly is because uh, each taxi company has a territory and they get to uh, have an exclusive monopoly in that territory. And as a result, the whole thing collapses. Okay, it's interesting that you mentioned Vancouver because they have brought in a $100 per vehicle annual license fee for ride hailing. 
the industry certainly doesn't like it. I think they like your model with a ten cent per trip fee instead. You think that that could be a barrier? That one hundred dollar fee in Vancouver. How do you think that could be a barrier for ride hailing? Well, there's twenty two communities. If uh, fifteen yeah. of them adopted the one hundred dollars, uh, that would essentially put in place a fifteen hundred dollar entry fee in addition to the cost of getting your class four license, the cost of insurance and everything, we would end up with far, far fewer ride hail drivers stepping up and offering to work on a Saturday night. Um, and we, and that's ultimately it's those late evenings. It's the peak periods where we need this service because that's where our kids aren't able to get back from, back from their, their jobs downtown. That's where women are at risk because they're perhaps accepting a ride from someone they don't know um, that hasn't been vetted. We, we, we see all kinds of those um, social issues associated with the shortage, the, the designed shortage of taxis at peak periods late at night. And if we can't ramp up, with a, the ride hail solution is essentially a, a solution that's almost perfectly designed for that kind of model where we can ramp up, um, have a, a real scalable supply of rides home, safe rides home uh, when they're needed. And uh, I, I'm really worried that the way the province is going right now, this Christmas season will be worse than any we've ever seen because people are expecting that there will be ride hailing. I've heard from people at that company party already said well well later tonight maybe i'll just I'll, I'll go on the uber i said you, you know it's not working yet and it won't it won't be working until the end of the year at the very earliest and th- yeah. they're going to the party with the expectation that they'll be able to use the app and then they'll find that they don't have any alternative t- and some of them are going to climb in their car and drive home speaking to coquitlam mayor richard stewart about the long wait for ride healing here i agree with a lot of what you said there and one of the things that's mystifying to me is why don't they bring in a real simple Metro Vancouver-wide local licensing scheme? Like instead of every municipality having their own licensing fee, like it's 100 bucks in Vancouver, you guys in the Tri-Cities have your own system, other cities are setting up their own licensing regimes. Why not just bring in one operating business license for the whole Metro Vancouver region? I posed those questions to the ministry. They actually had a dialogue session online for local government elected officials. And I asked, why on earth are we doing this in each community? Why are we allowing, say, Surrey to have a requirement that the doors on Uber cars have to be yellow, for example, or whatever, you know, the whole bunch of the things that we can, as individual communities, require in the trade dress of the vehicle, um, in the licensing fee, um, it, it, we're, we've set up a system that's nothing like Uber is in every other jurisdiction, partly because of the way Metro Vancouver is set up. And I would love to have seen simply, no, we're going to have one Metro Vancouver license. We're, the, the communities are now trying to get together. Most of us are down that same path, but we know that there are some mayors who don't want ride hailing, and they'll actually have the right to step in and put in place some provisions that make it really awkward or make it simply that it doesn't work in their community. Okay, do you think that there's been some fears expressed that once this is the cat's out of the bag here, that it's going to be a problem, that a lot of people will become Uber drivers and will have traffic gridlock or Carmageddon as a result? Do you you share any of those concerns in Coquitlam that this could be a victim of its own success if there's too many ride-hailing vehicles on the street? I don't have any concerns like that for Coquitlam, for the Tri-Cities. I recognize that they're going to have to take measures in some areas, like the airport and the cruise ship 
terminal and places downtown Vancouver. But uh, we're hoping that we get some ride hail uh, operators because we simply, the taxi industry monopoly hasn't worked for us. So we're really hoping that uh, a number of people step forward. But on that point, the, the, the requirement for a class four license, the other yeah. big hoops that we have to jump through in order to become ride hail drivers, um, they're making it so that I, I don't have any confidence that we'll, we will have a workable solution next Christmas, let alone this Christmas. Oh, man. Okay, I spoke to the representative for Western Canada for Uber the other day, and he told me that they're very worried about a driver shortage for the, the reason that you just said a moment ago the requirement for a class four commercial driver's license. Do you think they should have gone forward with ride hailing with a requirement just for a simple class five, like the basic driver's license? I've said it repeatedly to the minister. Uh, it works in every other jurisdiction. The only times I've ever been uh, felt unsafe in a vehicle for hire, it's been in a taxi and the taxi driver was texting or doing whatever. Um, you know, I've always, whenever I've used Uber or Lyft in other, in other jurisdictions, I have felt safe. And I believe the Class 5, with the special requirements, they had all kinds of special hoops, but it was still a Class 5 license. Uh, I don't know that I, I need my, my Uber driver to ha- have a commercial driver's license a uh, okay. commercial limousine taxi driver's license um, because uh, and or at least give me the choice and some people will opt for having a taxi uh, drive them right. uh, I'm fine with an Uber driver having class 4 and it okay. would make it work in the suburbs otherwise it won't work in the suburbs thanks for coming on my pleasure I appreciate Thank it you. that is Richard Stewart he is the mayor of Coquitlam obviously a big booster of ride hailing there you, let's talk about a pressing issue for all parents out there, and that's how much screen time your kids get a day. TV, computer games, video games, of course, the omnipresent smartphone. Every kid's got a phone. Every kid is wired to the phone. I'm not pretending I'm any different. I got two boys in high school. They're on their phones all the time. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Professor Sherry Madigan. She's an associate professor of child psychology at the University of Calgary, co-author of a brand new report on this issue. Hi, thanks for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me. Okay, Dr. Madigan, let's start with your findings, first of all, in your study just published in the American Medical Journal of Pediatrics. What did you find out? Well, we looked at um, 3,000 families in Alberta, and we looked to see how many uh, preschool children are meeting the screen time guidelines, which are no more than one hour of screen time per day. And what we found is that only 20% of two-year-olds and 5% of three-year-olds are meeting these pediatric guidelines. Wow. Are those, are those guidelines set down by the Canadian Pediatric uh, Group? They are set down by the Canadian Pediatric Society, um, and they're also endorsed by a variety of pediatric societies worldwide, including the World Health Organization, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. So it's pretty consistent that this recommendation of one hour of TV for preschoolers aged two to five um, is, is really, you know, the, the, what's been put forth right. by all these pediatric societies. How much screen time are kids getting? So on average, um, what we see in Alberta is that two-year-old children are getting about two and a half hours a day, and three-year-old children are getting about three and a half hours of television per day. And I think when you put that into the context of how many waking hours they have, which is usually around 12, um, you know, that's some food for thought because that's really about 30% of their waking hours um, are being spent in front of screens. 
Okay, I'm I'm really not surprised actually because I just I think that so many kids are attached to their screens this, uh, these days, and I think it's real tough for parents. What are the consequences for and health health risks? Like, what what is all this screen time doing to my kids' health? Yeah, so this research is really just emerging, and I think for a while. Um, people were unsure about, you know, the, you know, how clear these findings were, but I think we're getting a bit more consistent findings showing that, especially really early in development, when children's brains are rapidly developing, um, and what they really need to kind of thrive is these interactions with caregivers, face-to-face interactions. What we're seeing is that when they're spending a lot of time in front of screens, like two, three, four hours a day, up, upwards to lots more. We have kids watching seven to ten hours of screen time a day in some of our um, in our studies. You know, we're seeing that there are consequences for their development. So they're less likely to meet their developmental milestones, like walking, talking, running, all these things we want kids to be doing so we can set them up for school success. Um, they're also less likely to be sleeping. They're more likely to have disrupted sleep. And there's even some new emerging research that's just come out in the last few months to show that there's actually an impact on their brains as well. How about social isolation, which I I think is a concern for a lot of parents. They want to see their kids have lots of friends and being interacted with healthy relationships with other kids. But if they're spending a lot of time on screen time, does that isolate them? Well, I think think it's really important to think about what they're not doing when they're in front of screens. And that's Mm -hmm. one of them. They're actually not being social and they're not interacting with others. So, I think it's important to think about what screen time is displacing. So we call it the displacement effect. Actually, if you're in front of screens, you're not practicing your developmental milestones or you're not outside running around, um, you know, you're not getting enough sleep um, and you're not interacting with caregivers. So we often really try to emphasize with families that, you know, screen time can be used um, in moderation and that's okay but it shouldn't replace these really important face-to-face interactions or prioritizing physical activity sleep and and those social interactions that you just mentioned speaking to professor sherry madigan university of calgary what about the impact of parents behavior like i think a lot of parents get a lot of screen time themselves never mind the kids and i'll i'll confess this myself i mean you know i'm on my laptop a lot cell phone pc is it, is it tough for parents to kind of criticize their kids and say you better not be doing a lot of screen time when the parents are doing it too? Yeah, I think um, those are all really good points. And, and, you know, I think we're supposed to be media mentors. So as parents, we should model healthy device habits. And I think this is really important when kids are young because it sort of sets the stage for how they may use screens, you know, throughout their childhood. So Um, One of the the things that we did in this study is we looked at what predicts who is more or less likely to meet these screen time guidelines. And what we found is that, you know, amongst a variety of predictors, like, you know, how many siblings do you have in the home? um, You know, uh, are you a single parent household? Do you go to childcare? All these different things. What we found is that really this the strongest predictor of children um, exceeding these screen times is parents who also watch a lot of TV. So, I think screen time tends to be a family affair. And when parents are watching a lot of TV, their children are as well. So I think, you know, that's a really, I think, important food for thought uh, for us as parents, uh, me included in that, um, you know, that we need to model these healthy device habits. Is, are there any positives of screen time? Can it be an, uh, an educational plus for kids or maybe bond some friendships with, with kids if they're playing with their friends online and games and that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, I'm not against um, screen time. I think that we can enjoy screen time as a family. I, I We do Friday night movie night in our house and everybody loves it. And so I think, you know, screen time's a lot like junk food. Uh, you know, in moderation, it's okay, but we can't, you know, when it, when we give too much junk food to kids, it's not good for their health. Screen time's yeah. the same way. So um, I think there are some positive benefits to it. Um, you know, there is a bit of educational value to to watching shows like Sesame Street and Dora the Explorer. Kids will learn a bit of language from that. But the research is pretty clear that, you know, the amount of language that they learn from that is far less than the language they would learn from face-to-face interactions with a caregiver who's giving them lots of language. So I think that we sometimes think screens are going to be the the place where kids are going to actually gain a lot of education, but most of that education, educational value comes from face-to-face interaction. So that's why we say, you know, screens should never replace those interactions. Um, And some of what the research suggests is that the kids actually, there's a transfer deficit. So what we call a transfer deficit. So kids who are under the age of three who are observing screens, um, they have a really hard time applying what is a, two-dimensional concept on the screen to three-dimensional real life. So if they see some blocks being stacked on a screen, they're actually not able to stack the blocks. They don't learn that in real life because they have to go from two-dimension to three-dimension real life. They actually only learn to stack blocks if a caregiver sits in front of them and stacks them with them. So, you know, just to remember, there can be some benefits to screens, but it, 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 it's always uh, the benefits are always far greater when it's an interaction with the caregiver. I think it's a really important area of study, and it's a it's a fascinating report you brought out this week. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right, that is Sherry Madigan. She's an associate professor of child psychology at the University of Calgary. Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith filling in for Simi today, talking about the drive for ride hailing services in BC. Uber, Lyft, and the other ride-hailing companies have applied for operating licenses. They could be up and running by the end of the year. A lot of people want to see these services. But now think about this. Are Uber and Lyft drivers treated fairly? Are they paid a fair wage? Do they receive fair working conditions and benefits? Let's get specific on it. Should they get minimum wage? Overtime? vacation pay paid breaks my next guest thinks they should let's check in now with kim novak president of the united food and commercial workers union local 1518 kim thanks for coming on hi thank you for having me i understand you guys have gone to the bc labor relations board on this issue here and what do you want the board to do We have, yes. We have applied at the board for anyone who is driving for a ride-hailing company like Uber and Lyft to be recognized as an employee under BC law. Right. Now, Uber says, no, they're not employees, they're contractors, right? If they want to drive an Uber car, you sign a contract with Uber. So that means you're a contractor, not an employee. What's, What's the difference there? Well, we see that there absolutely is an employee-employer relationship there. The fact that Uber drivers are really reliant on the fact that their ratings are what lead to whether or not they're going to have access to work and the time of day that Uber and Lyft and other ride-hailing companies need these drivers 
it creates a very direct relationship between um, the drivers and the employer. So we're, we're saying, um, welcome to BC. We think ride hailing is a great thing. We know that people want it and we want to see it too. We just want it to be done in a way that protects the people who are driving for them. Okay. Does the BC Labor Board have the authority to designate these employees as these people as employees and not contractors? Well, we've applied to the BC Labor Board, but we're also calling on the Minister of Labor, Harry Baines, and the Minister of Transportation um, to ensure that they are deeming these um, drivers to be considered employees and that the, the Uber and Lyft and ride-hailing companies are the employer. So absolutely, the jurisdiction is, is here in BC through the government. We've seen other jurisdictions where um, governments have ruled that drivers are employees after the fact, and it's created lawsuits and it's created a lot of havoc. We, we have the opportunity in a very unique way in BC to get this right when people are coming into our market so that it's it's a more successful venture for everyone. Okay. If they were recognized as employees and not contractors, what sort of benefits would they receive? Well, we want to see them have things like minimum wage um, upheld, health and safety protections, vacation pay. Um, I mean, the health and safety one is a really important component to this because we know that um, without the employer-employee relationship and employment standards upheld, it doesn't lead to a safe drive for everyone. Um, I, I liken to the fact there are very few women who are drivers uh, for Uber and Lyft and other ride-hailing companies and other jurisdictions. It's a very vulnerable spot to be. So having employment standards and BC labor law upheld for these drivers encourages a safer work environment and also for the right. passengers that are driving with them. But if they were paid minimum wage, what's to prevent someone from signing up to be an Uber driver and then you could just sort of drive around and not even pick up any passengers and you still be getting paid well at the end of the day any worker employee employer relationship is going to have expectations that are laid out so we're not by any means suggesting that there's not expectations what we are saying is that this change in economy this change in the gig economy and precarious work in bc needs to have some protection around it we're not trying to stop these types of companies from coming in we see this is the way that the world is going but we want to make sure that the people who are driving within it are able to access minimum wage and access things like the health and safety protection and vacation pay. And without those laws in place, it really creates a very precarious environment that puts workers in a vulnerable spot like these drivers. Okay, speaking to Kim Novak, United Food and Commercial Workers Union about Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, are they employees or contractors? Here's what the Uber says, and I know you're, you're probably very familiar with these arguments. They will say, look, our drivers are not our employees, they're contractors. They sign a contract with us. And if you take a look at their working conditions, they don't have to conform to a schedule. They can work whenever they want. Uh, they can provide, they can work for one of their competitors' platforms. So they could drive for Lyft and Uber at the same time, basically. Uh, they provide their own vehicle to perform a service under their platform. I mean, that sounds like a contractor to me, not an employee. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, the fact that the the schedule one is an interesting argument because, uh, like I said earlier, there is specific time of day where these things need to happen, where where people are looking to have the Uber or Lyft ride. And I mean, you liken it to working at a bar. We see in in the world that we that we live in today that there are servers working in multiple bars, but working on a Friday night is likely when you're going to get the best opportunity for shift times. And so. The fact that you're working at multiple locations and the fact that there are a schedule may not be specifically determined by the employer, there are certainly times where if you want to be able to access the work, you must be available to work. And so what we're saying is 
those standards should be in place for this working relationship as well. What would you say to people who say, like, look, if somebody wants to be an Uber driver, no one is forcing them to do that. You go into this job with your eyes wide open. You can read the contract before you sign it, and you know what you're getting into. Uh, if you start driving an Uber car or a Lyft car and it doesn't work out like you think it should, and you're not making as much money, you don't have to do it anymore. I mean, no one's forcing you to be an Uber driver. So why should they be categorized as anything other than a contractor? I think like it's just like any job that you go into, right? I and mean, no one's forcing you to do it. If you're opting to go into it, then you should at least have the basic protections of employment standards. And I think, you know, one of the big issues that comes in with this and that's before the Public Transportation Board is what are the limits on the number of licenses that are out there for people to be driving? Because you going into it, having access to be able to work 40 hours if you want to is one thing. But when there's no limit on the number of licenses that are put out there to people, it really then starts to degrade from those who are working to be able to make a wage to be able to live in Vancouver and other parts of British Columbia that we all know are getting more expensive. Okay, obviously Uber and Lyft and these other ride-hailing companies would would oppose what you're asking for here. I mean, they argue that their drivers are contractors, not employees, so they don't have to pay them minimum wage. They don't have to pay them vacation pay. They don't have to give them scheduled breaks with with pay. I mean, obviously that's that's their business model. They're going to oppose what you're suggesting here. Is there anywhere else in the world where and other jurisdictions where Uber and Lyft drivers are recognized as employees and they are being paid minimum wage? Well, there's certainly other jurisdictions that have since ruled that they are deemed to be um, employees. And I think that's where we've seen a lot of these battles happening. Um, we know in New Jersey, there has been $650 million in unemployment taxes because the government has considered drivers to be employees. And you look at other places like Geneva, where the local government ruled that ride-hailing drivers are employees, and they responded by threatening to leave the city. But on a more local level, we know that there are ride-hailing companies, at least 17 different companies that have applied at the PBT. Right. And uh, Cater is one that has said that they will uphold employment standards in B.C. So I guess that's a sign that ride-hailing can and will exist in B.C. with also maintaining the employment standards okay. and B.C. labor laws. When do you expect to hear back on your request to the Labor Board on this? Well, we hope to hear back as soon as possible. We'd really like this to be heard before ride-hailing comes into B.C. Um, so that's why we've applied uh, when we have, and we hope to hear back very soon. Okay, it's an interesting one for sure. I'm following it with interest. Thanks for coming on. Great, and thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Kim Novak, President, United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Local 1518. Let's talk about that story that's gone viral now, the bad Santa at the shopping center in Penticton. Gary Haupt is his name. He's 69 years old. This guy's a pretty good-looking Santa. He's got a nice suit. He's got a nice white beard. Unfortunately, he's been fired because of inappropriate photos that he posted online. There's one photo of him drinking booze out of a hip flask, not very Santa-like, and then this is the really bad one. There's a photo of him, uh, it appears to be pretending to grope a young woman, reaching for her breast. This is not cool at all. He posted that on social media. He has been fired. Phone me on this. Tell me what you think. Should this bad Santa have been fired? Are we losing our sense of humor? Do you think that was a firing offense? 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. 604-280-9898. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Just as we get some of your calls lined up, 
Let's speak now to Susan Mesco. She is the founder and director of the Professional Santa Claus School in beautiful Denver, Colorado. Susan, happy Thanksgiving there in the United States today. Well, Merry Christmas to everybody up in Canada. You guys, you guys really have the uh, corner on the snow. I know that. <laughs> I know you get your share there too in Denver. Let me, uh, Susan. Let me ask you about the uh, this story here on our side of the border with this Santa Claus being fired for those inappropriate photos. What did you think of that story? Do you think that's a firing offense for this Santa? I absolutely do believe that. You know, it, there is no way to rectify or correct that behavior in the eyes of the public, that he, that he really did need to be removed. And it's heartbreaking that he did not get the kind of training so that he would have the mindset to know that he cannot use... You can't be humanly funny once you have committed to represent a legend. You have to take that legend seriously. When you put that name tag on your other humanity needs to subside. Or, or an option is shave the beard, get a strap on, and then you can be bizarrely funny in human life and put the beard on and be seriously Santa when that time comes. <laughs> okay, how, does your, uh, how do you guys train Santa Clauses there at the Santa Claus School in Denver? Like, would you? Would this be one of the things you'd train Santas to to not do, to not be posting photos like that? <laughs> Honestly, Mike, I can tell you that we have never, we've never said, "Hey, by the way, don't have your picture taken with with a flask. Please, <laughs> please, don't have your picture taken with your hands almost on a woman's breast." Yeah. Uh, we work with our Santas before they get to our Santa Claus school, and we want to see that mindset. And we do instill in them that the brand that they're representing is not my school, but the brand is you, Mike, when you bring your family, you have a certain tradition, memories. Your whole family has, has built up over the years. We're representing your brand for you and the next people in line and the next people in line. So it's not... It's not our brand. It's not that we think that this is funny. And I think, as he said, he was not so bright. And when someone said, here, I want you to take a picture with this flask, you know, he, he could have said, let me grab my cocoa cup and you hold the flask and we can have a drink together. So right. we teach them a mindset that should arm them for taking care of situations like this. So, no, I've never... I've never had to say to a Santa, please don't don't put a, a flask in your and don't pose them on Facebook once you have. Well, yeah. Sadly, yeah. I will I will be adding that to our curriculum. Yes, this is a guy who posted these photos himself on the uh, the local Facebook page there for the community. So I mean, I, I guess he's got no one to blame but himself. But he is sort of saying, well, he's out of a lot of money now. He says it's going to cost him five thousand bucks because he spent a lot of money on his suit or whatever. Does that the economics there make sense to you? Is like the 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 owner of a, a Santa Claus school. There is a big upfront investment for these Santas, I guess. You can guarantee that when you call a Santa to come to your home, if he bleaches his beard, he spent three thousand dollars a year on that. 
Most of their suits are now being custom made, so they're fifteen hundred to eight thousand dollars. He has insurance, background check, he has association dues. Every year the Santas most good Santas spend between travel and education close to another three thousand dollars. So the professional level Santa takes it up a step. Now he might be a guy who you know, just because you have a beard and a belly does not mean that you have the correct mindset and the tuned-in heart to make this work. You, it takes work and focus to become the level Santa that parents really want to see. Speaking to Susan Mesco, she's the founder and director of the Professional Santa Claus School in Denver, Colorado. Do you ever have anyone who uh, a wannabe Santa who comes to your school, Susan, and they wash out? Like the, you got to give them the talk and tell them, "Look, you're just not going to make it. You're not. You're just not cut out to be a Santa Claus." Does that ever happen? The nice thing is that when they get in a group of professionals, when they come in and they go, "Yeah, I'm just going to. You know, I'm. I got a beard, so I'm going to throw on a suit and I'm going to go out and I'm going to make money." Hmm. The thing is that it is. It is so intensive when we're teaching them sign language and Spanish and childhood development of the age and the stages of different children. And they have to go through training for special needs children, like autistic children, high-definition makeup, video and entertainment skills. They have to know about the reindeer. They have to have performance skills, how to answer any impossible question, business and marketing. Guess what? The delightful thing is they weed themselves out because if they were just here for the easy money, that's not going to happen for them to jump the hoops to get that kind of diploma from our group. That, I think a lot of people might not realize so much training and preparation goes in for a real professional, high-quality Santa Claus. I mean, like you mentioned, dealing with autistic kids or, or how to deal with tough questions. Like, What are some of the toughest questions a Santa Claus might get from a, from a kid? that their family is in the process of a divorce and they're not really comprehending, you know, what the ramifications for them are. Daddy's leaving or mommy's leaving and, you know, will I, will I, will I have a family anymore and what's going to happen to me? I think those are concerns. Ooh. One of the huge concerns, very sadly, is that with the school violence and shootings, This is huge. The children are seriously afraid. There's online bullying that they bring to the Santas. There are children that come to Santas that are suicidal. When the older children feel they have nowhere to turn to, they will turn to Santa. Or that their grandmother has been diagnosed, or the grandma just died, or the grandpa has been diagnosed with, you know, cancer or something. I mean, these, these are real concerns that... A Santa is approached with, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but each Santa probably comes out of the season with three to five stories of something that just brings both them, that brings them to tears. And then when they share it with us, it it makes us cry too. Do you think that when there's a bad Santa story in the media, it kind of gives all the good Santas a bad rap? It it definitely reflects upon us and how hard we try. I don't think it's indicative just of the Santa industry, but unfortunately it comes at a time when people are trying to celebrate and be with families, and it really comes at a bad time. All right. Susan, 
Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for coming on. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Michael, to you and everyone up in Canada, Merry Christmas. Joyeux Noël. All right, a little French there, too. That's Susan Mesco. She's the founder and director of the Professional Santa Claus School in Denver, Colorado. She thinks that the mall in Penticton did the right thing in firing that Santa Claus for those. Today, if you're fascinated by dinosaurs like I am, you will love this next segment. Dino Lab in Victoria, they've just received... An exciting new arrival there, a Triceratops skull. Wow, how cool is that? They recently finished working on a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton. It doesn't get much more exciting than that in the world of dinosaurs. Let me introduce you to Catherine Abbott now. She's a spokesperson for Dino Lab. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. I think a lot of people uh, maybe haven't heard about Dino Lab in Victoria. It sounds like a really cool facility you guys have there. Can you tell me a little bit about Dino Lab and what you guys do there? Sure, absolutely. We are a fossil preparation lab and museum that recently opened to the public. Before we opened to the public, we were just exclusively a lab that worked on dinosaur bones and sent them to museums and galleries all over the world. And then people kept finding out that we had dinosaurs in a warehouse in Victoria, and they kept knocking on our door saying, can we come and see them? And that's kind of how we started. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's a really exciting thing. Tell me about the T-Rex skeleton. I mean, this is super cool. You guys did a lot of work on that, and and it's now on tour, right? Absolutely. So Victoria the T-Rex is the world's second most complete T-Rex. She is absolutely amazing. And one of our paleontologists, Heinrich Mallison, actually believes that this T-Rex is the best preserved skeleton of a T-Rex known to exist today. We spent over 25,000 to 30,000 hours right here in Victoria preparing her bones, uh, repairing them, mounting them, and then eventually displaying them right here until she went off on her world tour, which started about a month ago. Okay, that is super exciting. Now, the T-Rex skeleton is named Victoria after the city of Victoria, is that correct? That is correct. We named her right here in Victoria because we repaired, restored, and mounted her bones right here. So we wanted everybody to kind of have a piece of Victoria whenever they see this T-Rex, wherever she's going to be. Well, that's that's awesome. So where was this T-Rex skeleton discovered? Victoria was discovered in South Dakota uh, about five years ago. Wow, and this is like the most complete, like it's pretty, there's not many T-Rex skeletons in the world, right? There's a very small number of these. Yeah, second most complete, only beaten by Sue. So Victoria has 199 of her 300 bones, and Sue, I believe she has 212. So she's beating her just by a little bit. Okay, where is uh, Victoria the T-Rex now? Victoria is in Arizona, the Arizona Science Center, where she will be for the next six months. I'm not sure where her next stop will be. We're hoping it's Chicago, because then it could be kind of Battle of the Beast, but that's just (laughs) us getting hopeful. Oh, okay, because Sue the T-Rex is in Chicago, right? At the Chicago Field Museum, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could have a T-Rex kind of face-off there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be something. Um, how do you? How does one go about preparing these bones? I mean, these are obviously sort of precious, uh, precious pieces of uh, fossils. So, how, how do you have? To, how do you go about preparing something like that? Absolutely. So, whenever we have a dinosaur sent to us, it's sent in a big plaster jacket. So, whenever a dinosaur is found, 
what happens is they wrap it in tin foil first. And the reason that they wrap it like a Christmas turkey is because the tin foil doesn't stick to the plaster jacket. So it's sent to us in this big jacket. We crack that jacket open and then we start using, they're kind of like little scribes, little power tools. And we go over the the rock until we reach the bone. And then once we get down to the bone, we actually use more delicate tools to actually scrape the remaining um, media off of the, our matrix off of the bone. Wow. What's it like to work on a T-Rex skeleton? That's got to be amazing to sort of have that in, in oh. front of you and in your hands thinking like, my goodness, this was a real T-Rex that was walking around in the uh, one, one, uh, one day in the past. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's, yeah. it just, for a dinosaur nerd like me, working on Victoria the T-Rex was just something incredibly special. I myself painted all of her replica teeth, so she's got her real skull on the floor next to her, and then she's got a cast skull on her that we 3D printed here. And I painted the teeth on the world's second most complete T-Rex. It's just unfathomable that I was allowed to do that. That is very exciting. Now, as I mentioned off the top, you guys are always getting sort of new pieces in there, right? Tell me about the Triceratops skull. Dozer. Dozer the Triceratops is... He, the reason he's called Dozer is because it's short, short for bulldozer. Oh. We have this 16-foot jacket with this Triceratops laying inside of it. So it's got the skull, and it's got actually part of the spine. We see some ribs. We're not really sure what's in there now. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be excavating that Triceratops to see inside and expose kind of what's in there. Right now, only by looking at it, we have found skin impressions of this Triceratops. It's absolutely amazing. Wow, skin impressions. So how does that work? So maybe you got some, that maybe this Triceratops, what, died in some mud or something and it left behind an impression? That's exactly right. So oh. this Triceratops was probably near a river or probably near some mud. It died, its body decayed, but as it decayed, it actually left impressions of what 66 million year old triceratops skin looks like right in the mud laying beside it wow incredible and where was that discovered that was actually discovered in hell creek montana wow how do these things end up in victoria but you guys just have made a name for yourselves as being a uh, uh, good restorers of these bones i mean how do how do these uh how do the, how are these bones entrusted to you guys so the owner of the company of Dino Lab, his name is Terry Diotka, and he's been in the fossil business for 25 years. He has been known for, he started with mammoth tusks and ammonites and eventually worked up to more dinosaurs, made a name for himself. He was originally based out of Calgary, but five years ago they moved here. And as long as we're close to, as long as Dino Lab is close to an airport, mm. pretty much we can have dinosaurs sent to us and we can have them sent away because as long as we have the ability to send them away, they can come from anywhere. Okay. You guys are a real working sense. lab there, but I understand you, you, you do ent entertain visitors, right? So people can come and check out your facility. Absolutely. So if you want to come for a tour, what we offer is an hour and a half long experience. So what we do is we take you into the dinosaur museum and you actually get to touch and hold real dinosaur bones. We've got 150 million year old stegosaurus tail spike. We've got wow. a juvenile allosaurus. We've got the most complete dinosaur in the world. And we even have one of the rarest dinosaurs in the world, all on display. 
and you're allowed to touch pretty much all of them except for the super fragile stuff. And it's one thing going to a museum and looking at these things in cases, and it's another actually holding a piece of natural history in your hands and really feeling what it's like to hold a 150-million-year-old stegosaurus tail spike. It's amazing. Well, that's incredible. I guess the, the Triceratops skull that you guys are working on now, I guess that's kind of the superstar piece you have at the moment. What, do you have any other cool stuff in the lab there right now? Yeah, so we are currently working on an Anzu Wiley. That's a type of raptor. That should be ready early next year. And we actually just got a delivery of a brand new T-Rex. So we're going to be working wow. on a T-Rex for the next year or so. And then we've got multiple triceratopses that we're working on we've got the two different kinds of triceratopses we've got the one in the museum and we've got a couple in the back that we're working on in the lab as well that's exciting stuff Catherine. thanks for coming on to talk about it hey thank you for your interest i hope to see you soon all right that's Catherine abbott the communications manager at dino lab in victoria let me tell you now about a situation at the iga grocery store downtown it's the corner of robson and richards in vancouver where the owner there says crime is getting out of control a recent video taken inside the iga store shows a violent confrontation between a man and a security officer the video shows the man allegedly attempting to steal something from a cash register. A loss prevention officer approaches him. The man turns around and punches him in the face. Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong spoke with David Sullivan. He's the owner of the IGA store in Robson Street, who says he's not surprised by the video because his staff has told him they are catching four to eight people every day stealing merchandise in the store it happens all too often especially in the last oh, eight to 12 months it seems the thieves are becoming more and more violent uh, especially in the store which uh, historically would be a rare thing normally if you're not you can see from the video we're not making an attempt to arrest them or do anything we're just wanting them to leave okay sullivan told global news that violent episodes occur two to three times a month in the store it's changed how management has instructed their staff to respond to thefts. The person you actually see being hit in that video is a loss prevention officer in the store. We've instructed them that under uh, you know, no circumstances should they get involved or, or retaliate. They should let the person leave without getting into the violence because people now, there's a lot of... Unfortunately, the people that are addicted to drugs are, are usually now armed with needles or screwdrivers or, or other things, and we don't. Nothing is worth anybody getting hurt. So we ask them to just, you know, ask them to leave and, and hopefully not get violent. But in this case, the loss prevention officer barely intervenes, right? Didn't he just tap him on the shoulder type thing? He just he basically didn't even say anything. He was, they were just standing there because normally, if the thief knows that you're watching them, they'll just leave. Um, in this case, this person, um, I, I was told perhaps he was high or something or drunk. Um, obviously, he took the initiative to, you know, uh, uh, he initiated the violence. You can see the female employee that he threatened was the manager on duty at the time. And then he just struck the loss prevention officer for absolutely no reason whatsoever. All right, David Sullivan, he's the owner of the IGA grocery store at Robson 
and Richards in Vancouver talking to Global News reporter uh, Jordan Armstrong. Sullivan also says they did call 911 after that violent incident was captured on camera. But management at the store says the police did not attend the scene. However, Sullivan does not blame the cops for what's happening in his store. I don't think that it's a policing issue because the police care. When they do attend or when you talk to police officers, they wish that they could do something to help to stop. And I believe they're sincere. So I think it's more of a the court system. It's not working. All right. He says increased thefts have taken a toll on his business. I'm not sure why it's okay or why people feel that it's okay to steal because in this case, it's, you know, we're not a large corporation. This is a small family business. And the money that I lose, you know, people talk about insurance. Well, there is no insurance to protect you against this type of loss unless, of course, it's a huge loss, which doesn't happen. So the money that we lose comes out of the pockets of myself, my family, and my employees. So, you know, looking at giving people raises or, or just, you know, participating in the community by making donations is affected by this. Ballpark it for me. How much do you think you're losing a month to shoplifting? I would say probably a couple of thousand dollars. A couple thousand dollars per month? Yes. All right, as David Sullivan, owner of the IGA grocery store on Robson Street in Vancouver, he says the increased thefts and violence have left him feeling frustrated with the reality of running a business in the downtown core of Vancouver. It's horrible. It's very stressful because I care about my employees and I care about the lost branch and officers. You don't want people getting hurt. It's, it's depressing to see how many people are stealing from the store. I don't like to use the word shoplifting. It's, it sounds <clears throat> like a petty crime, and to me it's not petty. It's serious. I like to call them thieves because that's what they are. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just, it is very frustrating. The only reason I'm talking to you, <laughs> um, because typically we, you know, we wouldn't talk to the press about this type of thing, but the reason I'm talking to you is because I'm hoping that something can be done because it's not just my store. It's every store downtown we we have an organization that I participate in called Vancouver Operation Cooperation. It's with the Vancouver Police and businesses mm-hmm. downtown. And um, they meet once a month to talk about uh, this issue and other issues. And, you know, the police are trying to help us. I think the courts, I, I keep going back to the courts because if you kept somebody and nothing happens, it's going to just keep going on and on. Okay, Global News did speak to the Vancouver Police Department. The police report they have not noticed an increase in calls related to thefts in downtown Vancouver. However, Sullivan here, the owner of the IGA store in Robson, says there's a reason why the police may not have noticed an increase in calls related to theft. Well, I I would suggest, of course, they haven't because I think I mentioned we don't call the police. Nobody calls the police because it, here's an example. We call the police if the theft is, if there's violence or, or in, in the case of the video that I sent you. But when we catch these, here's, here's an example of catching a thief, say, with $20 worth of product. You call, the, you call the police and it takes hours for the police to come, if they come at all. During the time that you're holding this person, you're paying somebody, actually two people, to be with them um, the whole time you're waiting. When the police do come, or if they do come, they talk to the person and let them go. Mm-hmm. So what was the point of calling the police? And that's why the police aren't seeing an increase. If something was done, 
when you call the police and if they acted, and I'm not blaming the police, but I want to be very clear. Yes. If something was done when you called the police, if the person was arrested in an efficient, timely manner, then that person probably wouldn't be coming back to my store to steal again. All right, that's David Sullivan. He's the owner of the IGA grocery store on Robson Street in Vancouver.